growing in God's Word, and learning what it means to take up our cross and follow Jesus. This is Crosswalk with Pastor Clay Stevens from Cross Culture Church in Raleigh. He is real. He hates God. He hates God's children. I don't think we think enough. We just go out into our day with very little thought about the fact that there is someone that is seeking to devour our lives. The devil, Satan. Most of us give little thought to him on a daily basis, but the Bible says he is very real and very dangerous. Hollywood usually depicts him as either the guy who wants to help everybody have a good time or a cartoon character with a pitchfork. But the Bible's description is much different. If he can steal your joy, your contentment, he'll do it. If he can kill your marriage or your relationships, he'll do it. If he can destroy your life and your walk with Christ in any way, he'll do it. I'm Rick Freeman. Welcome to Crosswalk. As we've been spending 2010 walking through the book of Revelation, we come today to chapter 12, and we enter into a section of this study that will help us more fully understand what is going on during the tribulation period. Chapters 12 through 14 don't necessarily advance the story chronologically, but they fill in some gaps on our understanding of how everything comes together in God's plans and purposes. The age-old promise that Jesus Christ will return someday, and He will establish His kingdom on this earth, and you and I will be able to live in the peace and the prosperity of that time. Included in chapter 12 is a description of Satan that reminds us of just how terrible our enemy is and what his desire has been all along. We're glad you've joined us today as the Revelation series continues on Crosswalk. Revelation chapter 12 is where we are this morning in in verses 1 through 6 that we'll be reading in a few moments. Now, Revelation chapter 12, well, really, Revelation chapter 12, 13, and 14 are what is referred to as a parenthetical section of the book of Revelation. They're a parenthetical section of the book of Revelation. Here's what that means. Most of what John gives to us, most of what we what is recorded in the book of Revelation is what has been communicated to him through this vision. Remember, he, he's, he's been sentenced uh, to exile. He's on the island of Patmos. And while he's there, God comes to him and gives him this vision or series of visions in which uh, lay, God lays out his future plans for his, for his creation. Most of what John records is a record of the events that will transpire uh, in, the, in the last days, in the latter days before Jesus Christ returns. We know it as the tribulation period. That's most of what the book of Revelation is about. And most of that account from chapter 4 on, most of that account runs chronologically. In other words, it's, it's kind of going as, as it will unfold time-wise. Does that make sense? You understand what I'm saying? But every once in a while, we come to a section of the book of Revelation where, where the chronological order or the timeline kind of stops. It's not progressing the story chronologically. It's not advancing the story time-wise, but it is advancing our knowledge. In other words, parenthetical sections of the book of Revelation are filling in some informational gaps for us. Does that make sense? So that we can better understand, okay, now I see what's it. And it's very important that you understand that there are parenthetical 
uh, sections of the, of the book of Revelation, or, or you'll get all mixed up and all confused about the timeline. Revelation chapter 12 through 14 is one of those parenthetical sections where, where the, the timeline kind of stops so that John can fill in some gaps for us. Let's read it together uh, this morning. The text will be up on the screen, and of course, uh, if you brought a copy of God's Word today, hopefully you'll, you'll have it open to Revelation chapter 12. Verse 1, hey, if I haven't said it, let me say it. If I have said it, I'll say it again. Thanks for coming out today. You honor the Lord with your presence, and I pray that He blesses you and speaks to your heart and your life today through His Word. A great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. And she was with child. And she cried out, being in labor and in pain, to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven. And behold, a great red dragon, having seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads were seven diadems. And his tail swept away a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she gave birth, he might devour her child. And she gave birth to a son, a male child, who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. And her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And then the woman fled into the wilderness, where she had a place prepared by God so that there she would be nourished for 1,260 days. I have mentioned several times throughout this study that this particular book of the Bible, and this is not the only one, but this particular book of the Bible is, contains a significant amount of symbolism. Let me explain to you what I mean by, by symbolism. As John writes the events that God gives to him, He's recording this timeline, as I said, of events that will unfold. Most of what John records are the events that will transpire in the latter days, and at the, towards the end of this, this earth and, and the age of man and, and leading up to the return of Christ. Most of those events is what he is recording. Some of what John records is not real. Well, that real is probably not the, maybe not the best way to say it. Some of what John records, perhaps the best way to say it, is not is not literal. Now listen to what I'm saying. It's really what he's seeing. It's really describing something that will occur. But some of what John sees is symbolic in nature. Let me give you an example. If you're with us, you may remember this. In, in Revelation chapter 4, there is what's called the, uh, the throne room scene. And, and several times we go to the throne, but the, there's this throne room scene and this worship scene. And, and there in Revelation chapter 4, John talks about the four living creatures. You may remember that. These four living creatures whom the text says are full of eyes in front and in back. And then John goes on to say that, that one kind of looks like a lion and one kind of looks like a calf and, and so on and so forth. I, I may be wrong, okay? I may be wrong. But I don't believe when I get to heaven, I'm going to run into these four living creatures full of eyes in the front and full of eyes in the back. 
and kind of looking like a lion and, and, a, and a calf and, and whatever else. I, I could be wrong, but I don't think that, that, that we're going to see living creatures that actually look like that. But rather, John in chapter 4, in this description of these four living creatures, is communicating to us symbolically something about the throne, the, the throne scene and what's going to be happening. And, and in chapter 4, I explained in that particular case what I, I thought the symbolism of the four living creatures was chapter 12 moves us into a whole new era, a whole new arena of symbolism. So there's a, there's a lot going on. So because there's so much symbolism in Revelation chapter 12, we're going to spend most of this morning simply defining some of those terms that we just read or some of those, some of those things that we just read about this morning and, and what they stand for, okay? Revelation chapter 12, uh, John has, sees these these personalities. And let's get into the first one. He, he sees this, starts out with saying this great sign appeared in heaven. The, the Greek word is mega. Uh, he saw this mega sign, this, this giant sign. I don't think that he's saying necessarily giant in the sense of, of size-wise, although it may have been, but I don't think that's what he's emphasizing. I think what he's emphasizing is giant or, or mega in importance that John sees this very important sign in heaven, which may or may not simply refer to up in the sky. He says, I see this, this very important sign appeared in heaven. And then he begins to say, a woman clothed, as he says, with the sun, the moon under her feet, and her head, a crown of stars. She was with child. She cried out being in labor and pain. So John looks, and he sees this woman up in the sky. It's pretty obvious that this is not a literal is where I'm getting in the symbol. It's not a literal woman because John tells us, hey, this is a sign. In other words, this is symbolic of something. She's pregnant and we'll get to her child in just a few minutes. But just who or what does this woman in the sky represent? You're probably not surprised to know that there have been several opinions about this. There are some people that believe that the woman in the sky represents the church, the, the, the body of Christ, universal. Roman Catholic doctrine teaches that the woman in the sky is the Virgin Mary. Uh, the, the woman who founded the, uh, the cult known as the Church of Christ Scientist, Mary Baker, Patty, Eddie, Patterson, Eddie, she went through some husbands, apparently. <laughs> the woman who founded that religion in the 19th century dared to claim that she was the woman of Revelation chapter 12 and that the child she gave birth to was her new religion. But the vast majority of conservative scholarship, and here's where we're going, the vast majority of conservative scholarship hold to uh, the fact that the woman, the, the symbolic woman, represents the nation of Israel. The woman is the nation of Israel. By the way, if you'd like to take notes, there's an outline on the back of your information sheet if you want to fill that in there. The woman that John sees represents the nation of Israel. Now, there are a few reasons why I believe, and as I said, most conservative scholarship believes that the woman represents the nation of Israel. For one thing, there's been a growing, um, a growing amount of, uh, of attention and, and appearance of the nation of Israel. We saw it throughout chapter 11, and, and I told you this early on, that we would see this increasing amount of activity with the nation of Israel showing up in the latter days. And, and that seems to be the case here. Uh, Israel seems to be coming more and more into a place 
of uh, prominence. Uh, secondly, the, the woman's pregnant, which very likely symbolizes the fact that the nation of Israel gave birth, if you will, to the Messiah. Remember, Jesus was, is Jewish, and that the, uh, the Messiah came through the nation of Israel. But the third reason that I believe that the woman represents the nation of Israel, and it's probably the most significant um, reason, is this mention of these, uh, this sun, moon, and stars. She's, she's clothed in the sun, which may simply mean that the radiance of the sun clothed her or enveloped her. But this mention of the sun and the moon and these 12 stars over her head. As far as I know, the only other place where there's this reference to the sun, moon, and, and, these, and these 12 stars is in Genesis chapter 37, where in Joseph's dream. Do you remember that story? In Joseph's dream, and Joseph has this dream where he sees the, the sun and the moon uh, bowing down and, and the stars bowing down, and uh, Jacob, his father whose name was changed to Israel, Jacob says, well, what, are you, what are you saying? Are you saying that, that me and your mother and your brothers are going to bow down before you? The, the, 12, the, the stars, the sun, the moon seem to represent Jacob, his wife Rachel, and Jacob's 12 sons that made up the 12 tribes of Israel. So there seems to be a correlation between Genesis 37 and Revelation chapter 12 here in these sun, moon, and stars. So, the woman symbolizes the nation of Israel. Okay? Now, in verses uh, 3 and 4, there's another sign. And another sign appeared in heaven, and behold, a great red drag- dragon, having seven heads, ten horns, and on his head were seven diadems. We really don't have to speculate about the great red dragon because verse 9, which we'll get to next week, tells us just flat out that the great red dragon represents Satan or the devil, another one of his names. That's just who it is. We just know that. If we were to read on this morning in verse 9, if you were to look down, you would find that, that John just tells us who the red dragon is. That's Satan. That's the devil. His red color I think, is probably representative of his, of his nature. He is a murderer. He has, as Jesus says in John 10.10, 10, he has come to steal and kill and destroy. You know, I, I just don't, this is kind of a sidebar here, but I, I'm afraid that we don't often enough recognize or think about the reality of a spiritual enemy that we go into battle against every single day of our lives. I don't think we think enough about that. But the Bible says that there is a real enemy that, is, that he is known by Satan, he is known by, by the devil, he's known by several different things, but that he is real and that he hates God, that he tried to overthrow God, we'll talk about that in a minute, and that he hates God's children. I don't think we think enough, we just go out into our day with very little thought about the fact that there's, there's someone, as Peter writes, that is seeking to devour our lives. As I've told people many times, if he can steal your joy, your contentment, he'll do it. If he can kill your, your marriage or, or your relationships, he'll do it. If he can destroy your life and your walk with Christ in any way, he'll do it. Anyway, he's, he's got uh, seven heads and ten horns and, and seven diadems or, or ruling crowns on his head. What's that all about? Well, 
uh, I'm really not going to go a lot into it today because we're going to find these, these seven heads and ten horns and these crowns. They're going to show up again later, and it's more appropriate to go into greater detail of it then. But let me just at this point uh, say this to you, that the seven heads, uh, I believe, represent seven mountains according to Revelation chapter 17 and verse 9. Seven heads represent seven mountains. The ten horns represent kings, according to Revelation chapter 17 and verse 12. So we'll get into that in, in greater detail when we get there in chapter 17. But, but for now, suffice to say, that that's what it is. And they are somehow, this whole seven heads and ten horns and everything, somehow it's all connected to a re- what apparently will be a revival or a rebirth of the ancient Roman Empire where the Antichrist will, will, will rule, will in essence act as Caesar over this revived Roman Empire. So the red dragon is Satan, and in verse 4 it says, his tail swept away a third of the stars in heaven. Again, symbolic, and it may symbolize the fact that Satan, while loose on this earth, has great power. And he destroys, and certainly he does, and we just talked about that a moment ago. But more than likely, the sweeping away of the third of the stars is symbolic of the fact that a third of the angelic host sided with Satan when he rebelled against God. In Isaiah chapter 14, he rebelled against God. It said that that some of the angels sided with Satan. They thought, okay, yeah, let's jump on this guy's bandwagon. We think that he can win. The Bible says that they sided with him, and according to Daniel chapter 8 and Jude 6, they were cast out of heaven at that point. And so I think that that's a reference to the fact that, that these, these were cast out as a result of their rebellion and their siding with Satan. That's the red dragon. <clears throat> and then in verse 5 and 6, we come, into, we come to the third person. In John's vision, he says it's a, it's a, it's a son or, or a male child. I think it's pretty obvious about this one, too. The, the son represents Jesus Christ and the fact that he's coming into the world to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. And her child was caught up to God and, and to his throne. What's that all about? Well, the nation of Israel, I said a moment ago, gave birth to the, to the Messiah. He came into the world, and the text says he will rule the nations with a rod of iron, which is a reference to his, his millennial reign, the fact that he will reign, uh, his kingdom will be established, he'll reign during what's known as the millennial reign of, of Christ. Uh, again, we'll get to that when we get to chapters 19 and 20 in the millennial reign of Christ, but it's not a bad idea to remind ourselves that there is a day coming when Jesus Christ will return bodily to this earth. That's what God's Word says, if it's right. And it's been right about everything else it said, so I have no reason to think it's not right about that. Christ will return bodily. He will establish a literal kingdom on earth, a physical, literal kingdom on earth. And He will rule and reign for a thousand years on this earth before eternity begins. And we'll see this again as we get towards the end of the book. Part of the reason, I think, because people speculate, you know, why, why not just go on into eternity? What's with this thousand-year reign? Part of the reason, I believe, perhaps the primary reason, I, I think, at least partly, is just, to, just so we can experience, I think, what God intended for His people all along. So that we might actually experience, this world might actually experience a righteous kingdom 
without corruption or injustice. And the fact that it says he rules with a rod of iron isn't necessarily saying that Jesus is going to be a a cruel ruler or a, a mean ruler or anything else, but there will be no question as to who is in charge. As we, I don't remember, we were talking about that this morning. It's, it's like there's a new sheriff in town, and Jesus is his name. He's going to rule and reign for a thousand years. By the way, here in verse 5, it's, it's talking about this son who is born, but it also makes reference back to um, this, uh, this uh, woman that fled into the wilderness and it, that we read about in verse 1 and 2. It makes reference back to this woman. And again, what's going on with her and her, and her fleeing to the, to the wilderness. I want you to remember something. Satan hates us. He particularly hates the nation of Israel. Because as I said a moment ago, the nation of Israel is responsible for the Messiah coming into the world. You see, all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, when, when Satan convinced Israel, Adam and Eve, that they would be better off if they, if they disobeyed God's command, if they rebelled against God, and if they, if they chose their own path and, and ate their own fruit. By the way, we know that fruit was, uh, okay, good, good. No, we don't know what that fruit was. <laughs> Hollywood says, I don't know what the fruit was. They'd be better off if they, if they and they rebelled against God. You remember the story in Genesis? And and way back in Genesis chapter 3, God makes a promise to Satan at that time. He says, one day, one will come. There will be one. I will send one who will, as the text says, crush your head. In other words, one will come someday who will destroy your dominion, who will destroy your power, and break the bondage that you have placed mankind under by your activities. Way back in Genesis chapter 3, God made that promise. I don't know how, how serious we take God's promises at times, but I think Satan takes them pretty seriously. And so ever since that time, Satan was trying to, was trying to break the promise any way, somehow, any way he could. Even back there in Genesis, he, he tries to break the promise by having Cain kill Abel. But God sent Seth to overcome Satan's plans. He, he tried to break the promise by, uh, by having this wicked man by the name of Haman destroy the, the people of Israel to, to kill the Jews. But God sent Esther to thwart Satan's plans. He, he tried to use Pharaoh and the nation of Egypt to, to, to destroy the, uh, the Israelites. He tried to use Herod by ordering the, the, the murder of, of every male child two years and under that was born around the time of Jesus in hopes of cutting off the promise. Satan actually even thought he'd won when, when, when he, in effect, stirred up the crowd and the religious leaders and everybody else and had Jesus killed. But God's power was greater. And he was, as the text says, caught up to God, meaning... Death couldn't hold him. The grave couldn't keep him. The devil couldn't stop him. And Jesus Christ rose from the dead and returned to heaven. That's what it is to be caught up to God. That's what the child did. And the woman flees into the wilderness in verse 6. The woman fled into the wilderness where she had a place prepared by God so that there she would be nourished for 1,260 days. There's, there it is again. There's that time frame. Three and a half years. It's the promise of God in verse 6, again, that the nation of Israel will eventually turn to him. The Jews that are, that are still left, they're still alive. They will eventually turn to him, trust him, recognize Jesus Messiah, trust him as their Savior. And, and Satan 
and his Antichrist will come down against the nation of Israel in a severe way. And God is actually, according to Revelation chapter 12, is actually prepared or is preparing a place where the nation of Israel will be able to, uh, to find security during that time of great, great persecution and tribulation. God promising to take care of the people that have turned to him. There's a lot of symbolism in Revelation chapter 12. I I know we've got a woman that I believe represents the nation of Israel. We've got a red dragon that represents Satan. We've got a child that represents the Savior, Jesus Christ. And in the midst of all that, we find this promise. And it's the BP squared of today. It's the big picture biblical principle. And it looks like this. Revelation chapter 12, verse 1 through 6, is a look back at the age-old conflict. This has been going on since, since Satan rebelled. It's a look back at the age-old conflict while looking ahead to the age-old outcome. Because you see, whether Satan believes it or not, the outcome's already established. We talked about that last week. It's already a done deal as far as God is concerned. A look back at the age-old conflict while looking ahead to the age-old outcome and looking forward to the age-old promise. That Jesus Christ will return someday and he will establish his kingdom on this earth and you and I will, will be able to live in the peace and the prosperity of that time. I think it's interesting that there's a connection to this protection of the nation of Israel in the wilderness because the relationship between the nation of Israel uh, and, and God kinda, kind of took form in the wilderness as God was leading them into the promised land and his hand of, and of protection was upon them that whole time as they wandered in the wilderness. And now we come full circle and as we come to the end of time. God is here. He is again protecting the nation of Israel in the wilderness. Leading them to what ultimately the whole earth will be the promised land, if you will. A land of peace and prosperity as Christ rules on the earth. Now that is a reason to celebrate. That's a freedom story. Jesus is going to come again. He's going to establish his kingdom. He's going to rule and he's going to reign. The devil will be defeated and God's will and purposes and plans will be accomplished. As we saw today, Satan has been trying to stop God's plan from the very beginning. But God's plans cannot be stopped. And those who place their faith in God will never be disappointed. Satan's defeat is certain. And just as certain is the promise that Jesus Christ is coming back someday to establish His kingdom on this earth. What a glorious time that will be. What a promise we have. What a Savior we serve. We're glad you joined us for this week's message on Crosswalk. Each week, Pastor Clay opens the Bible and brings out its exciting and practical truths to apply to our lives. Cross Culture Church is a new church in North Raleigh, but instead of religion, we're about relationships. And instead of rituals, we practice realness. We meet Sundays at 1030 at Leesville Road High School, a mile and a half south of I-540, exit 7. And we welcome anyone looking for a place to learn about God's plan for their life. At Cross Culture Church, we experience the liberating, satisfying, life-changing power of the cross. And it's our desire to bring that power to a culture in need of freedom, hope, and joy. We hope you'll come join us on a Sunday morning. We'll save a seat for you.
Cross Culture Church, a new church for people like you. Learn more about us, who we are, what we're about, what we do, and what we believe. Visit us online at crossculturelife.org. Cross Culture Church, taking the cross to our culture and taking our culture to the cross.